along a country road that had become extremely muddy after heavy rains. They approached the village and came upon a young woman who was trying to cross the road, but the mud was so deep she couldn't do it. The older monk at once picked her up and carried her to the other side of the road. The two monks then walked along in silence. Five hours later, as they were approaching their lodging temple, the younger monk couldn't restrain himself any longer. Why did you carry that girl across the road? He asked. We monks are not supposed to do things like that. The older monk replied, I put that girl down hours ago. Why are you still carrying her? Well, uh, in the spirit of challenging oneself always, I'm going to discuss a word. Not only is it apropos to our recent discussions, but... It's uh, in that group of words I find difficult. So it's jna, jnaya varana. Jnaya varana. Okay, and I'm going to read from a brilliant uh, book and uh, an excellent researcher, Paul L. Swanson, from his book In Search of Clarity. This chapter is actually talking about klesha. Klesha jnaya varana. Right? And he goes on. I'm just going to ignore the clashes because it just means, uh, you know, obstacles, the passions of everyday life. So he's talking about this jnaya varana as an obstacle to knowledge or an obstacle to the knowable. And he goes on and he gives a couple definitions. And he, uh, he mentions first Yogacara tradition. Right, and their simple interpretation of the obstacle to knowledge, or more literally, uh, the obstacle to knowables. Right, familiar to all uh, Japanese Buddhists, he says. He goes on and he mentions Bodhisattva Bhumi, and he says of this Jnaya uh, Varana, what is reality, which occurs within the range of knowables, which is completely purified of obstacles to what is knowable. When there is obstruction to the knowledge of a knowable, one speaks of an obstacle. And so, uh, I guess Swanson goes on and uses uh, Stramati, who says, Jnayavarana is the undefiled lack of knowledge. Wow, burning oil as he goes. Jnayavarana is the undefiled lack of knowledge which hinders the activity of knowledge concerning all knowables. And he goes on and he talks about some other interpretations. He talks about that uh, Suzuki, D.C. Suzuki in his studies on the Lanka mentions a twofold hindrance of passion and knowledge. Right, Mahamadi mentions um, that the knowledge hindrance is purified when the egolessness of things is distinctly perceived. 
And I like he mentions um, hey, all these uh, shared, uh, except for one, Ilamat. He says, on the other hand, perhaps because he was working on a Yogacaran text, translates Jneya Varana in the Mahayana uh, Samgraha as l'obstacle au savoir. It's the obstacle to understanding, right? Obviously in French. I find that interesting because I don't have to look that up. Right, he goes on and he even uses a Sonkapa, uh, the Tibetan uh, scholar, and says uh, of Jneya, right? Severance of Jneya and therefore the habitual propensities of Klesha are the content of Jneya Varana. Right? So he says. Hold on here, I jumped one page too far. There you go. So he says, in this case, jnaya is not the goal being obstructed, but something acting as the obstruction and needs to be removed. Interesting, right? Interesting. Because he goes on and says that the Buddha, having completely severed Jnaya-varana, because they are forever in samadhi. And he says, where all mental activity is forever stilled, right? That's on the other shore, the parasamgate, abiding in bodhi. But he goes on and says, bodhisattvas, again, bodhi, uh, someone who has devoted themselves to the path towards enlightenment, a great being, sattva, they can sever their jnaya-varana temporarily by entering Samadhi, and we talked about samadhi either being samadhi, samada, or samadhi, meaning a mind that's focused, a mind that's contemplating, right? It says that you can actually use jnaya varana as your focus in samadhi, but when they come out of samadhi and back into this world of conceptual thoughts and understanding, jnaya-varana is once again present. It says, thus, in samadhi, where all mental activity is suppressed, that's where jnaya-varana is absent. When one comes out of samadhi, there is jnaya-varana. Therefore, mental activity itself, conceptual thoughts and their knowables, jnaya, it's not just conceptual thoughts that are knowable. It's not just, you know, um, prakriti or, or uh, kleshas or dhamma, uh, phenomenal objects. Uh, but again, the awareness, the understanding, the knowledge, the wisdom that um, tathagatagarbha itself would be also considered jnaya, right? Sorry, I added that last little bit. And he goes on and says that because of that, that's what I talked about in my last podcast, that Churiyi uses this um, to, and I'll, and I'll read what he says. He says, the co-arising of all things, I explain, is emptiness, right? The Shunyata doctrine, everything is empty of um, intrinsic self, 
meaning what you perceive as uh, a rope is not really a rope when you break it down to its constituent parts, its aggregates. Same as people. People are not the self because you can't point to the self, right? And it goes on, he says, again, it is a conventional designation. Here's another uh, term that means this dependent origination. Same thing that I just explained. I mean, understanding emptiness is understanding dependent origination or conventionality. And lastly, in his poem, he says, again, it is the meaning of the middle way. Again, it's funny because you got to remember the first line is simply one character. It's an ideogram, but made up of a couple of pieces, but again, one character. The second line is actually two characters in Chinese, and the third line is two again, right? And it's funny because one of them just it just means mid, right? So all that meaning, right, is the path is via navigating this golden mean that we've discussed over and over and over and over again, right? In the Chinese, the idea is the golden mean, not insufficiency, not excess. So how do you navigate what we were just looking at? If, if Jnevrana is an obstacle to knowables, and knowables reside where? Well, reside within the mind. So obviously the mind itself is both the obstacle uh, and um, your ability to go beyond. And what do I mean by that? We'll actually go into this a little further. So here I've moved on, and, and it was thanks to the wife, realizing that I should look at some of these books that uh, I don't read anymore. Swanson is a scholar. I have his recently published Mohar Jiguan. Obviously me and maybe a few dozen other people have been studying uh, this. But now I've moved on here. Let's read Zen Keys by Tichnat Han. It's a guide to Zen practice. And in his chapter entitled Bodhidharma's Statement, he says, Seeing to one's own nature is not the fruit of study or research. It's the profound insight derived from living in the heart of reality, in perfect mindfulness. And he says, according to Bodhidharma, Zen is a special transmission outside the scriptures, not based on words or letters, a direct pointing to the heart of reality, so that we might see into our own nature and wake up. Right, he goes on and says that Bodhidharma said, Zen has been transmitted directly by the Buddha and has nothing at all to do with the scriptures and doctrines you are studying. That seems quite odd, doesn't? Almost doesn't, like it doesn't really fit, right? What does that mean, right? Well, if you're a fan of Bruce Lee, you're familiar with this particular little treatise. It originates in Chinese. That's why it's not um, out of place. Right? It's called The Finger and the Moon, or A Finger Pointing to the Moon. Okay? And this, once again, is from Zen Keys by Tichnat Han. And um, let me just read. So he says, As reality can be lived and experienced, Buddhist teachings never attempt to describe reality. They only serve as a method to guide practitioners in the direction of reality. And I'll just, uh, spoiler alert, the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon, it's not even the path to the moon. It's simply pointing your way of self-realization, right? And it goes on, it says the perfect awakening sutra. It's the Maha 
Vaipulya Purna Buddha Sutra. And thank you. You can hold your applause till later because that one's a tough one. It says that all the Buddhist teachings are a finger pointing to the moon. To see the moon, we use the finger, but we must not mix up the finger and the moon. The finger is not the moon. Skillful means in Sanskrit, upaya, we've discussed this, are methods created to guide people towards awakening. Right? And he says, um, Great masters possess what Buddha calls the wisdom of the skillful ways, upaya jnana. Okay, and we have actually looked at what jnana means. So it's, right, their skillful ways are their jnana, or their knowledge, or their wisdom, or their understanding of their mind, all of which could be considered synonyms, right? And it mentions the flower held up by the Buddha, which uh, allowed Makishyapa to uh, achieve his enlightenment. Right? And he goes on and talks about effective, right? skillful. Right? And the Dharma talked about 84,000 Dharma doors. And I'll quote Chur Yi, who mentioned uh, there's no end to sentient beings, then there is no end to the entries to the Dharma of Nirvana, which is your skillful means, your upaya. Right? Right? So once again, what are we looking at here? We're looking at... Um, Barriers to knowledge. Barriers to knowable. Knowables, right? Barriers to understanding. So what is it we want? Right? Actually, what is it we want? I can actually grab from a quote from a book that I pulled out that I haven't looked at in years. It's called The Zen Koan as a Means of Attaining Enlightenment by Daisets Tataro Suzuki. This book, published many, many years ago, originally was uh, Zen Essays by uh, Mr. Suzuki, Dr. Suzuki. It was republished under this because uh, back in the late 90s there was a, a, quite a movement towards the koans. But again, barriers, if we remember where we're at here, barriers to uh, the understanding or barriers to liberation. So what are we looking at? So I'm going to jump around a little bit in this book because I'm looking to actually get across uh, a couple points. And right now I'm flipping through an, uh, a section that I'm going to go and read... Um, that I highlight... 22 years ago. Okay? And so, what are we looking for? Right? So, forget the definition to Zen. What are we looking for as a practitioner? Right? And in this book, he mentions, and I'm only quoting a, a portion, says, it's a search for something that will give mental peace and harmony by overruling contradictions and joining tangled threads into one continuous continuous line, right? Oh, I thought we'd continue. We're continuing with the book, The Zen Koan, as a means of attaining enlightenment by D.T. Suzuki. It's interesting, kids. Uh, I was just reading 
that he completed this after uh, the years that he spent on the Lanka Vitara and his studies in the Lanka Vitara. But he says about this, well, these essays, this in particular, he says, I shall try in the following pages to inquire into the historical significance of the koan in Zen, its office in the relation, uh, in the relate, realization of Satori, its psychological aspect, uh, and finally, its relation to the Nembutsu as a form of Buddhist experience. Right? So the Nembutsu, or the Nyinfo in Chinese, is uh, the repeating of the Buddha. Of, uh, well, I mean, in this case, um, the uh, repeating of the Buddha's name, Namo Amitabha, or uh, Namo Amitabhuts. Namo Amitabutsu in Japanese and Namo Amitofo in, in Mandarin. It's different uh, in, in Vietnam, Vietnam and in Korea. The, the Nimbutsu, the Nyinfo, it's shared across. And he goes on, because we're going to talk about the Nimbutsu. And he goes on and says that the ultimate aim of, of Zen discipline is to attain what is known as Satori in Japanese and Sambodhi, or Abhisamaya, enlightenment in Sanskrit. It's already been explained in his previous writings, he says in the Lanka, uh, as a Zen text, it naturally emphasizes the importance of Satori, which is defined here as uh, a very long Sanskrit word. Let's give it a try here. Swapracha. Swa prachat maria jnana gatigokara. That is to say, the state of consciousness in which noble wisdom realizes its own inner nature. And this self realization constitutes the truth of Zen, which is emancipation. And I love that he uses the term moksha. We'd recognize that from the Gita. And freedom. Here he uses um, a rarely used um, Vashavartin, not commonly used Vashavartin, <clears throat> in order to make clear what is meant by self realization. He quotes the Avantamsaka Sutra, which is one of uh, Amitayusa, Amitabha's, um, the Buddha of Infinite Light, the Buddha of uh, infinite life, the one that they commonly venerate in the Nimbutsu or the Nyenfo. That's uh, one of uh, the sutras devoted to him. And I'll just paraphrase and uh, just say that it, uh, Sudana opens by asking, how does one come to this emancipation face to face? How does one get to this realization, right? This noble wisdom that realizes its own inner nature. So Skandra, his, I guess his mentor, says, a man comes to this emancipation face to face when his mind is awakened to prana paramita. Again, we'll be familiar from previous 
podcast prana, paramita energy or uh, vital essence, or in this case, it's meaning the perfection of wisdom, right? And it also mentions that arya jnana uh, is also considered a synonym. Uh, jnana being wisdom or knowledge, right? We've learned that earlier. And arya uh, being great. Uh, it's a term that's often used. Uh, for gods, right? He says, he goes on as his answer to how to achieve this pranaparamita. He says, uh, you stand, right? When your mind is awakened to this pranaparamita, you stand in a most intimate relationship to it. For then, one attains self-realization in all that one perceives and understands. So, on that note, before I proceed and we look at the Nimbutsu and, well, before we proceed with uh, discussing Satori and the Nimbutsu, and then, of course, back to these, um, these barriers, these, uh, you know, barrier obstruction, same, same, barrier obstruction to knowledge or to the knowable. Right. So before we round it out, just wanted to read later, much later in in the in the book. As to the intellectual understanding of Zen, the outsiders, as well as some Zen advocates, are constantly practicing it against the experience of Zen. There is no doubt that herein lurks the most deadly enemy of Zen. They are not eventually put down; they are sure to raise their heads again and again especially when Zen shows any symptoms of decline. Right? And then he quotes a couple of people. As far as Zen is concerned, experience is all in all. Anything not based upon experience is outside Zen. The study of Zen, therefore, must grow out of life itself, and Satori must be thoroughly penetrating. If anything is left unexhausted, there is an opening to the world of devils. Right? So, we talked about this, right? Mindfulness, right, is to remember, right? And then uh, that uh, term that we were looking at before, which was returning to or turning back to, right? So let's talk about Satori first. Satori is thus the whole of Zen, Suzuki says. Zen starts with it, ends with it. When there is no Satori, there is no Zen. Satori is the measure of Zen, as is announced by a master. Satori is not a state of mere quietude. It's not tranquilization. It's an inner experience which has a noetic quality. There must be a certain awakening from the relative field of consciousness, a certain turning away from the ordinary form of experience which characterizes our everyday life. The technical Mahayana term for it is paravritti, turning back or turning over as the basis or at, at the basis of consciousness. By this, the entirety of one's mental construction goes through a complete change. It is wonderful that Satori, that a, an insight such as Satori is capable of causing, 
such a reconstruction in one's spiritual outlook. But the annals of Zen testify this, that the awakening of Pranaparamita, which is another name for Satori, and we've lost our place, Therefore, it is the sine qua non, sine qua non of Zen. Right? It's the, uh, the, the heart of Zen. And he goes on and says that, you know, there's a number of um, practitioners that will say <clears throat> that it's not to be found in Satori. Right? Just as commonly, we'll hear um, people mention the... Uh, the importance of, of uh, not thinking of attainment, but obviously when enlightenment or awareness or moksha is our goal and it's a cessation of the suffering, if you achieve that, I mean, you really don't deny such a thing. Right? Right. So I wanted to go on again much later when he's talking about the koan. And we're going to talk about what Satori can be, right? not a permanent rent. Again, like I said, turning away from or turning back, right? same as Sati, being remembering. So we open this part, and he's explaining his experience. He says, My mental condition then was like a reflection of the moon penetrating the depths of a running stream, the surface of which was in rapid motion, while the moon itself retained its perfect shape and serenity in spite of the commotion of the water. I absolutely love that because that's your goal, is to be uh, a sea of calm uh, serenity uh, in an ocean of turbulent waters, you know, those sort of ideas. And so I'll go on and read more Suzuki. He says, on the sixth of the third month, I was holding Wu in my mind. Again, Wu is this Chinese idea of being at once um, in, um, at once it means emptiness, but also to be I'm looking for a good English word here, but to be enveloped by it is not the best word, but um, um, engrossed by it, or, um, right? Because you can use uh, emptiness itself um, as your insight, and with, well, vipassana, and with calmness, shamatha, um, you're able to use that to tie up the mind. So you can actually use emptiness itself, but... So he's saying, suggesting that he was holding Wu in his mind, as usual, while sitting on the cushion. So likely, um, that's what he's doing. He's using emptiness, or in Chinese, and it's interesting they're using it here in a Japanese context, but Wu in Chinese would be what we would uh, consider samadhi, translation of both samadhi and emptiness. And again, if you're following my podcast, we've talked about this before. And he goes on and says... He was holding Wu in his mind, as usual, while sitting on the cushion. When the head monk came into the meditation hall, accidentally he dropped the incense box on the floor, making a noise. This at once 
opened my mind to a new spiritual vista. And with a cry, I obtained a glimpse into my inner being, capturing the old man, the author of Wu, Xiao uh, Shu. I gave the voice to the falling, and then he wrote a poem. Unin unexpectedly, the path comes to an end. When stamped through the waves or the water itself, they say, Old Xiao Shu stands supremely above the rest, but nothing extraordinary I find in his features. Right? So, it's, it's a twofold thing. We've mentioned this in a number of different ways where you can use um, perspective. Right? Say if you're sitting in meditation and the noise of a fan you find annoying. Well, the idea is to detach yourself, obviously, but if you can't do that, then certainly try to detach um, the sound from the fan. And here, <clears throat> because the practitioner was, as he said, holding Wu in his mind. I know that sounds terrible, but... So he was focused, right? Trying to think of nothing, right? No judgments, no, no aversion, no attachment. So when his master dropped the, the shock itself, kind of like common to some sects of Zen where they'll try to shock someone into this awakening, this, um, this temporary state of Satori, which is, I've always called it kind of like what the, the alcoholics will call a moment of clarity. I don't know where I get that from. It's, it's from that, their blue book. I mean, you can really see how... Um, now, I'm not an alcoholic, but, uh, you know, I, I'll take uh, philosophy uh, wherever it uh, makes sense. And, I mean, for me, at a very young age, that absolutely made uh, perfect sense, right? A moment of clarity, right? It's not something that's permanent, right? Because nothing is, um, right? And I mean, that's why, like I said, when we look at these translations, particularly, like I said, the Wu, I mentioned that about Qi, right? Prana, um, as well as breath, both Prajna and Prana. Uh, you can get the idea of both breath and energy, right? Sometimes confused. So here, Wu is used for emptiness, right? He's using that as his insight. And he achieved this um, enlightenment, right? So now we're going to go and look at, what are we here? I think it's 46. Yeah, I think so. Or 45. 45 or 46. So the next section is what uh, is called the factors determining the Zen experience. So we've already discussed Satori, we've discussed the Nembutsu, which we'll continue later. The Koan, I guess I haven't really discussed all that much, but um, the Koan itself is not overly complicated. It's simply a question or a challenge, um, right, that the mind... Uh, the conditional mind is unable to solve, thus tying that conditional mind up, allowing um, your Buddha mind, depending on the translation, they'll give you a different idea, right? Direct perception in which the mind grasps 
true nature of existence without the intermediary of logic. Well, that's the idea you're looking for here, right? But, as I said, he talks about factors determining Zen experience, right? Uh, he tends to convolute it a little bit. And he talks a little bit about Bodhidharma. He talks about acquirements. He even goes in to Huenang. If you've been following the podcast, you understand that schism between the Southern and the Northern school. But what I find very interesting is he will mention, as I said, he's going to mention that important uh, figure, Bodhidharma, right? Who uh, was very big on the Lankavatara. Now, the Northern and the Southern school, the schism had to do with this gentleman, the Sixth Patriarch, or arguably the, the Patriarch of the Southern school, Huenang. Uh they say was uneducated, but obviously had an understanding. But what had he learned? From what we see, uh, he likely had learned um, the Diamond Sutra, the Diamond Cutter, or the Vajra Chadika. Right, the Diamond Sutra is one uh, that's you know could be considered Mahayana, obviously, but uh, Yoga Karan, Madhyamakan, Chidamadran, uh, Tibetan. Um, a pure land will venerate it. Gentai, Chan, Zen. Right, so the Pranaparamitra. Pranaparamitra Hiradaya Sutra. We've talked about this one over and over again. The heart of uh, the perfection of wisdom. Right? So, again, the, the discussion, I think I mentioned it, the problem with the Pranaparamita, the Mahapranaparamita Sutra, is uh, we pretty much all agree that uh, it is much later, right? So any references, we've seen this before, any references to them uh, being contemporary to each other, the Lanka, the Vajra, uh, Chadika, the, the Diamond Sutra, and the, um, the Heart Sutra, arguably they weren't. But that's neither here nor there, because again, we're looking back um, in hindsight, and we're just looking for that uh, upaya, right? Those skillful means, the efficient means, what works for us. Right? And so, uh, he talks about something like universal truths in this chapter, right? Again, he keeps going back to other uh, traditions, but I underline this, and he says, but it is a search for something that will give mental peace and harmony by overruling contradictions and joining tangled threads into one continuous line. Right? Now you're starting to see the threads here. It's a package. It's simple, but it's a package. When you start to break it into its component parts, you lose the point. I mean, it's almost reverse to what Pranaparamita is. It's, it's understanding that there is no individual, it's all individual component parts that just continues to break apart. So there is no self or anything you can point to that is this or that, uh, or neither this nor that. 
It is all this and all that. Right? That's why you look at the Pranaparamita, right? As Avilokitestra was cruising in the deep Pranaparamita, he saw that all five skandhas were empty. And thus, ills and suffering were never born. Right? So, we go on and we talk about the Nembutsu. Right? Why? Okay? Because that's what the Nembutsu was for. It was taught very early on that, like Tole mentioned, that if you find yourself losing focus simply by bringing your focus to not being aware is bringing yourself to awareness. So the Nembutsu, or uh, mantra, was designed um, to tie your mind up, just like I just quoted. Tie your mind up, uh, and hopefully allowing for that self-realization to happen, right? to see beyond. Right? Um, but um, it says... Uh, okay. So again, I'm going to quote, and this is, believe it or not, um, passages that I'm under that I underlined over 20 years ago, but again, it makes her point. So um, I highlight this section, again later in this section, about the Zen experience. The quote is, The searching mind is vexed to the extreme as its fruitless strivings go on. Beautiful language. But when it is brought up to an apex, it breaks or it explodes, and the whole structure of consciousness assumes an entirely different aspect. This is the Zen experience, the quest, the search, the ripening, and the explosion. Thus precedes the experience. That's why many times these satori or awakening experience can be jarring or shocking, right? And again, he goes on and says, this is seeking, the seeking or quest is generally done in the form of meditation, which is less intellectual. And he, and he says, vipassana is the less intellectual. That's what we would call insight meditation. And he goes on and says, then the concentrative jhana. Jhana is training the mind. And I do believe he meant concentrative with the, the vipassana, uh, intellectual calmness uh, would be your shamatha. Right? The sitter sits cross-legged, and he goes on and talks about that practice. Right? He talks about right, wanting no thought, achitta. I mean, I love that. Right? No thought in this case. No birth of the mind. Chitta is important in this case because it's the form or the, the word that was chosen in the Abhidharma, the psychology form of Buddhism. So, achitta refers to no more birth. Remember I talked about this in a previous podcast, no outflows. Um, and he goes on and talks about that one-pointed concentration, the ekagra. Ekagra, right? And once again, highlights the importance of the doctrine of emptiness or the original purity of Dharmakaya, right? Now, that's weird, right? What's the original purity of Dharmakaya, right? And how does this... This is this idea that if you've ever heard it before, that, um, you know, 
oh, I can't remember the exact Zen Kohan. But the way it goes is he's asking, well, you know, uh, a master asks you, what was, I can't remember, and I'm going to slay it, but what was your form prior to being born of your mother and father, right? So this idea of, again, a koan that's unanswerable, um, but at the same time it is answerable because you can say, well, I had no form. Exactly, emptiness, exactly, right? And now I may have missed out here, and I may have just have to paraphrase the final um, because I can't seem to find where good old Suzuki... Um, oh, I found it. Very nice, very nice, very nice. Okay, so he talks about, which is interesting, he talks about uh, the Jodo uh, and Zen. So he says Jodo bases, again, this is a Buddhist sect uh, in Japan, and I would argue no different than Tintai or Pure Land. Um, but there's a few of them, uh, there's a few uh, sects that rely on strictly uh, mantras or nimbutsu, but I'll go on. Jodo bases his theory on the nimbutsu, and the Zen bases theirs on the koan exercise. Right? And he goes on and talks about the two, and I've pretty much covered that. Right? We do have a new uh, term, which is kind of cool. Ekachita. Ekachita. Which is singleness of thought. Right? But he goes on and says... Um, The vocal nembutsu and the koan exercise are here standing on common ground, right? Because what he's talking about, and um, I believe I may have jumped too far where he explained. Okay, so Jodo wants to see its uh, followers reborn in the land of bliss, right? Uh, where they can attain their enlightenment. Do this, they're taught about their sinfulness and... Right? Um, Amida is now held up before them whose original vow was to give them a helping hand. Right? So this ekachita is how they use the nembutsu, the single-mindedness. So they use the nembutsu, the namo aminabuts, or the namo amitofo, or just simply namo uh, amitaba or amiteus. The idea is exactly the same as the koan. The idea is to tie up your conditional mind so that you can see beyond into your true nature. And he goes on and says, Psychologically uh, considered, the aim of the vocal nembutsu is to do away with the fundamental dualism, which is a condition of our empirical consciousness. By achieving this, the devotee rides over the theoretical difficulties and contradictions that have troubled him before. With all intensity of thought and will... He has thrown himself into the deeps of his own being. He is not, however, a mere wanderer without anything to guide him, for he has the name with him. He walks along with it, and he just goes on and talks about, right, um, shraddha, right? Both faith and confidence, right? Because you need to have that complete and utter faith and confidence, both in, well, for the Jodo sect, it would be faith in this uh, heaven that lies beyond this suffering world, and uh, that can be applied by simply uttering uh, Amitabha's name, right? They say that even as few as ten perfect utterances can allow you a, a birth uh, in uh, his... Uh, well, if it's Amitabha's, it would be Sukhavati. In uh, his... Uh, you can 
create for yourself a lotus seat in Sukhavati. Now, if you go and read, uh, a lot of these are referring to a place inside of you, right? So the koan is designed to just tie you up uh, so you can see beyond when you're not making these um, kleshas. You're not allowing kleshas or chittas. doesn't matter what you want to call them, right? All of these volitions, these ideas, these thoughts, this, you know, black and white, yes and no, good and bad. These judgments, these differentiations that you produce with this mind uh, that you want to see beyond or, you know, tie up so you can see properly, right? So there uh, is where we sit now, right? Absolutely, you could see a mantra, a koan, um, or even simply sitting as a, a means to enlightenment, just as uh, Krishna told Arjuna that jnana yoga, knowledge yoga is absolutely a path to moksha, to enlightenment, awareness. But action yoga was the better way, right? So absolutely you can sit on your cushion, you can use shamatha and vipassana, insight and calmness, and achieve your enlightenment. Right? Same as using a mantra. Right? Same as a koan. But the whole time, you need to understand the teachings properly. You need to know what these devices, these upaya, these skillful means, are designed for. And you need to know the goal, the heart, the heart of the entire practice is that, that samadhi, that jnana, the, um, the focus, the awareness, that sati, that mindfulness to remember, to remember, to always be focused, to always look past this dualistic, ego-based um, confusion that we all suffer from. So, we'll leave it at that. Zen. Chan. Dhyana. Um, I guess... I probably shouldn't leave it there uh, without being overt about my point here. So, the barrier, these barriers to the knowables, they're us. They're our own mind. It's the barriers that, put, that we put in our own way, right? It's these confusing, um, the, the, the words we use that we tend to use just to you know, to obfuscate the truth rather than, you know, clarify. So that's what I wanted to get at. We started at the very beginning with the definition of uh, obstacles to knowables. And we finish off by realizing we're the obstacles, as are even the tools, right? If you allow a mantra uh, to be your goal, you start counting those mantras rather than allowing them to tie you up and tie that mind up so you can see beyond. All you're doing is reinforcing what it is you're trying to unravel.